Hello, everyone. Welcome uh, to this session, Can We Revive Britain's Rust Belt? Mm -hmm. I'm Alistair Donald. I'm the Associate Director uh, at the uh, Academy of Ideas. Uh, and I've been the producer for this session along with Jonathan, Jonathan Warren uh, from a think tank called Localis, who've been our partner uh, for this session and re really pleased to have Localis as a partner. Um, I think they do some interesting work. Check them out uh, on, the, on the web if, if, if you can. And they're also partnering with us early next year doing a Debating Matters Championship in Kent uh, where we're going to continue some of the sort of discussions and the themes uh, from this session. So that's Localis. Just in terms of this, this session, just by way of introducing it and situating it, a couple of things have caught my eye uh, in the past couple of weeks. There's the Our Towns video, which was the kind of Labour Party video, which um, I think is interesting because it certainly suggests uh, that people are, are once more taking seriously the issue. Not, not, not that it never was taken seriously, but attempting to find some uh, solutions to some of the issues in, of, of northern towns and what we're calling the Rust Belt uh, as, as a kind of uh, reflection of perhaps some of the similar issues uh, that happened in the American Midwest uh, starting to appear in Britain. And the other uh, thing that caught my eye was the BBC TV series, uh, The Mighty Red Car, which sort of termed itself as a real-life soap opera. Uh, fantastic series, I thought, if I don't know if any of you saw it and, and, and watched the whole series. I found it really engaging and kind of, I, I just think, you know, a few of the things that ran throughout uh, that series are, are just some of the things that we might want to consider in the course of, of this conversation today. You know, it was a very human and engaging program, I thought. People having to take uh, very serious and important decisions. You know, do you stay in your, your hometown? Do you go away and get yourself an education or a job? What happens if you go away to the people that are left behind, your parents and your grandparents? How do people from small towns fit into cities and vice versa because there's increasing talk of a cultural divide and so on? Um, and, you know, just what does the collapse of social civic uh, infrastructure mean uh, for, the, for the places that we live in uh, today? So hopefully these are some of the things that we can uh, reflect a little bit on and consider. I very much hope that this is going to be a kind of conversation, both uh, some initial thoughts uh, from my speakers on the panel, who I'll introduce in a minute, uh, to sort of ask them to give sort of six minutes opening uh, thoughts, and then we'll come out to you for any points and questions and try and sort of develop the conversation uh, around uh, what comes up. So let me uh, briefly introduce them in the order they'll speak. Um, unfortunately, we have lost Dan Dewsbury, who was the creative producer of uh, The Mighty Red Car, which I'm a bit gutted about, but uh, he, uh, he phoned up very apologetic, uh, saying that he had a, a family problem that he's going to attend to. So four speakers left, and that's more than enough, I think. Um, so on my immediate left, we've got Dr. Uh, Ruth Dudley-Edwards, who's a journalist, broadcaster, biographer, and a historian, uh, renowned as an award-winning author of fiction and non-fiction, 12 uh, crime novels to your name, many of which should satirize institutions and political correctness, which kind of maybe gives you a sense of where uh, Ruth is coming from. Targets include civil service and academia, uh, and all sorts of others, and at present is writing, a, a, a working on The Death of a Snowflake, um, which uh, sounds rather alarming. 
So that's Ruth. Welcome, uh, Ruth. Second on my immediate right, uh, we've got Caroline Flint, MP. Uh, and for, uh, I think, a fairly impressive 21 years, Caroline's been uh, served as a member of parliament for Don Valley, often while uh, having ministerial roles of one sort or another, including public health, employment, and housing. Uh, interestingly, for the, this session, uh, Caroline served latterly in the government's, uh, uh, Labour government's minister's Euro Minister for Europe, but uh, has, you know taken a lot of flack recently for being a person that's uh, quite staunchly uh, def uh, defended the democratic uh, vote on, on Brexit and also co-chair of the all-party parliamentary group on uh, the Northern Powerhouse. So that's Caroline. Welcome, Caroline. Um, on my far left, we've got David Goodhart, a journalist, author, and think tanker, founder and former editor of Prospect magazine, and currently head of demography at uh, the Policy Exchange. And his, uh, again for the purposes of the session, David's most recent book, The Road to Somewhere, New Tribes Shaping British Politics, is, is a, a Sunday Times bestseller, but it's also kind of popularized this, this uh, couplet that we've become quite familiar with over the last year or so, the somewheres and anywheres. And on my far right, uh, Mo Lovett, uh, writer and researcher specializing in arts and culture policy, 20 uh, plus years in the arts sector, uh, producing and managing participatory arts projects, and most chair of something called The Great Debate in Newcastle. And I'd urge you to check uh, that out for anybody in the Northeast. And a regular, uh, uh, regular guest on Sky News is uh, All Out Politics and Sunset Programs, if you're up very early in the morning. So that's Mo. Um, so, as I say, we'll, they'll start off with a five, six, seven minutes opening remarks, and then we'll come out to you. So, Ruth. Um, I got involved in journalism very late on, in my early 40s, having been a, just writing books until then, and never doing political journalism. But um, I first got involved because it seemed to me nobody, was, nobody much was taking on the, the IRA and Sinn Féin because they were so busy trying to make peace that they didn't want to upset anybody. But then I got involved with the Orange Order. Now, you talk about um, somewheres. The Orange Order are more somewhere than anybody, I think. In fact, you know, they are notorious for no surrender and we refuse to alter our route. And the reason I got involved in them was that uh, I got a letter out of the blue from a guy who said he was an orange man, who said he was very upset. That this was at the time of Drum Cree. I don't know if you remember horrendous violence in Northern Ireland over a particular parade route called Drum Cree. Um, and there was a few years in the mid-90s of real violence and some deaths. And it was all awful and terrible for the image of Northern Ireland. And he's asked me to come to a parade. In fact, what he said in his letter was, will you come to a black parade in August? I didn't know what a black parade was. Um, it's something called the Royal Black Preceptory, which is sort of one step up from the Orange Order. And um, he, I felt, how can you refuse, of all people, an Ulster Protestant giving you an invitation? Because it wasn't what they were notorious for, especially to atheists who were originally Dublin Catholics. Um, but I said yes, and I went, and he took me to an absolutely typical rural parade in the middle of nowhere. Now, remember, I knew nothing about Orange Men except what I had read in politics and what I had read in the odd book and what was happening that I was reading about in the newspapers. And everybody hated them. That was the basic point. Everybody hated Orange Men. 
and they were the undermensch. That's what they were. They were, ex they were the people you were allowed to hate. And um, actually, I found a rural community of mostly very decent people. And then I got sucked into it more and more, and then I began to uh, write about them, tried to explain them to audiences here in newspapers and on the radio, and, um, and the same thing in the south of Ireland. And I mean, I have never, I was new to all this sort of thing. I couldn't believe how ignorant, ignorant the media were, how ignorant journalists were, how ignorant diplomats were, how ignorant all the people involved in the bloody peace process were. They were all swallowing the best propaganda that was around. They never bothered to go and visit these ghastly people in the middle of nowhere. I mean, as one academic who was one of the better ones actually said to me, for all I know, they could live in little caves in the hills. Well, that's what they said about them. Um, and that was the routine thing. So um, I just sat with them. I sat with them during standoffs. I sat, um, I was there when there were riots against them. I, I just sat with them. They kept feeding me. They forever fed me. <laughs> One thing I notice about the tribal differences in Northern Ireland is that um, the Protestants are terrified you'll starve to death and the Catholics are terrified you'll die of thirst. Um, they're the most hospitable people. They're not killing each other. Um, and I realized poor old orange men were utterly dreadful at PR. They were incapable of making their case, and somebody had to do it. And I ended up being, um, oh, God, being called Orange Lil and their spokesman and their apologist and um, the rest of it. I just tried to explain what they were. And the abuse I got in Dublin was worse than anywhere else. But the incredulity, and I'm sure that David will be talking about the same sort of thing. How can you be interested in these awful people? And actually, they were absolute models, an awful lot of them, of decency and um, courage. And they'd been under siege for about 30 years. A lot of, them, a lot of their friends and neighbours had been murdered. And they had kept going doggedly, and they hadn't taken to the hills, they hadn't run, they hadn't left Northern Ireland because they adore it. It's their place, it's their somewhere, and they're not going for anybody. So anyway, um, I offer you that as my start in, uh, in, as a journalist. Um, I would then say that it, I suppose, gave me a taste for the people that nobody else likes, which is why when I go to, Ameri to America, I tend to go to Indiana. <coughs> And I was there the night, the day, the week before the Trump election. And when I came back, I realized he would probably win. But of course, nobody thought that here because they're undermensch, you know, obviously the dreadful people again. Um, but I, I knew lots of people there from being there before, and they were good people who had, many had voted for Obama, but they were not going to vote for Hillary Clinton because they despised her, and she knew they d she despised them. And um, so they were going to hold their noses and vote for Trump. They weren't doing it because they were misogynist or racist or anything else. It was the way the cookie was crumbling. Um, I give you two stories to end with. I, when my book on the Orange Order was published, um, Waterstones withdrew the invitation to launch, have it as a launch venue in Edinburgh, um, which caused me no little annoyance considering they had hosted Jerry Adams a few weeks before and he's a mass murderer. Um, I was, I, one of the launch places was Liverpool, where it was launched in an Orange Lodge, which was an interesting experience. And um, I got a call on the train going back to London from Lord Longford, whom some of you will remember, 
who was an um, amiable dotty fellow who spent a lot of his spare time visiting um, lifers in jail and uh, standing up for the underdog. And he said, Ruth, Ruth, what is this? You have some done something terrible. You have written a book about the orange men and you seem to be quite sympathetic. And I said, yeah, they're quite nice, actually, um, Frank. They're, they're okay. They're okay. He said, no, you don't understand. They're the most dreadful, dreadful, dreadful people. I said, you bloody well go to see the Moors murderers every second week. What are you talking about? And the last one is um, a BBC presenter I respect because as a correspondent, he actually did go to places that other people didn't go to. But he confessed to me that a few, a couple of months before the referendum, his 12-year-old daughter went to, on a school trip to, for a few days to the north of England. And she came back and said, so daddy, we're leaving the EU. And he said, no, no, darling, what gave you that idea? Don't be silly. And she said, but we... Oh, darling, everybody else is, Daddy. Everybody else up there, they're all going to leave the EU. And he said, no, darling, let me show you the latest polls. So he showed her the latest polls. She said, well, Daddy, I'm sorry, but in every house there's a leaflet saying leave. Um, so he has been suitably, suitably chastened, and I thought it was very good of him to admit it. But that about sums up my view of the state of the media when it comes to the coverage of anything that isn't actually central. Okay, thank you very much. So I think a useful start bringing out some of the sort of cultural issues. But Caroline, your, your thoughts, please. Thanks very much. So why are we talking about the so-called Rust Belt? Well, the short answer is Brexit. The referendum ripped a scab off revealing the feelings of many for whom the benefits of modernisation and globalisation seem pretty marginal to their lives. Uh, they saw, and they continue to see, their concerns at best ridiculed um, and ignored. And the truth is this has been brewing for a decade or more. Now, I represent Don Valley in Doncaster. I live in Doncaster. And I've seen many improvements in the place I represent and live, new health services, schools, alongside new businesses. But in 21 years... That is nothing compared to the transformation we've seen in our cities, which is a good thing, whether it's Manchester, Glasgow, Cardiff, Birmingham or London. But there was enough going on, despite that, in many communities for them to feel they were gaining something uh, from UK PLC. Now, I would suggest that what happened was, and this is a 10-year lead, lead-up, if you like, to the referendum, in the wake of the financial crash, it became very clear that the advances of the noughties weren't spread evenly. London, the South East, and hotspots like Cambridge and the Oxford Corridor, they were the big winners. The losers were the industrial heartlands and Britain's small towns. Now, left behind sounds quite patronising in a way, but industrial heartlands like South Yorkshire, Teesside, South Wales, once saw themselves as the engines for Britain. They felt they were part of a national endeavour that they had purpose. Today, many in those communities feel their best days are behind them, where nostalgia for the past competes with pessimism about the future, and the younger generation who don't go to university can't rely on the decent paying conditions which was their parents' and grandparents' story. Now, my husband is from Teesside, where in the 60s, British Steel alone employed over 30,000 people. Well-paid jobs for many without much formal education. 
At its peak, there were 91 blast furnaces. Today, there is one. Younger generations, including in my husband's family, emigrated to Canada, to Australia and the Middle East, or to the south of England. The area lost jobs, and the new jobs were lower skilled and poorer paid. This led to a slow depopulation and brain drain. Companies, along with the trade unions, once provided the social life, the clubs, the work dances, sports days, and football teams. And along with religion as well, he comes from a Catholic family, a common culture that bound communities together. Today, some of those institutions survive, like the working men clubs in my constituency linked to coal mining, but the ties that bind have weakened. The truth about economics is decline doesn't just affect prosperity, but also self-esteem, confidence, and optimism. And I think the EU referendum revealed these feelings in stark terms. Anti-politics, anti-establishment, and against a remote EU. And I say this as someone who voted Remain and campaigned in Remain on the doorsteps in Doncaster. And regardless of the different views of my constituents and some Labour Party members in that as well, I always tried to make sure that at the end of this process, when the result was announced, we could still continue to find common cause. Outside of our prosperous university cities and London, everywhere in England voted leave, reflecting what Ruth has said. And did so despite regions with the lowest economic output, like South Yorkshire, despite the fact they were the gainers from European grants, and in the northeast, where despite car firms like Nissan in Sunderland, many of their car workers voted leave. So how do we start to put things right? And I've got a few points. First, I think we need to listen more and do fewer things bigger and better. Now, this is hard for politicians because there's a never-ending queue of people with a worthy idea. But there's a huge north-south inequality that does exist. NHS funding gives far more to London than the north. Arts in the north would need an injection of £700 million just to keep up with the arts spend in London. Planned investment in London is £4,155 per head to £1,600 in the north. So we need to rebalance our economy. Second, it is an absolute priority to connect our communities through transport and technology. We can't recreate the volume jobs of the past, but we can transform the access to new jobs by improving transport links from those outlying towns to economic centres and develop the supply chains to them. For 17 years, I campaigned for a link road off the M18. It was finally completed this year. Three miles of road connects our airport, which I also campaigned for, and has led to 2,000 jobs at our growing iPort. It has reduced the travel times locally and for those who commute to Sheffield. And I can tell you, and it doesn't happen very often, people spontaneously come up to me and tell me how great it is. But I also have a quarter of my constituency that has no or poor access to fast broadband. And even where new housing estates are being built, they're not connected to the latest technology. Now, the northern landscape is not devoid of great businesses, innovation, creativity and ideas. But that lack of connectivity is not only holding us back economically, it's holding us back socially and not allowing us to shape our future. Third, we need to answer the question, why hasn't Britain got the workforce it needs? There are very few people against all immigration, but many believe it's not fair or well managed. 
Some employers have been quick to take advantage of the movement of free movement to the detriment of the local labour market. So not everyone can be a rocket scientist, but the brutal truth is that we do not train enough of our population to fill the skills gap that exists. Fourth, education. Despite more young people going to university, too many still leave school after 11 years of compulsory education without the right hard and soft skills, especially in our so-called Rust Belt areas. Small towns struggle to attract good teachers to raise the quality and change outcomes. Now, young people love living in cities. That's why things like Teach First work, they're all happy to come and work in London and work in the most deprived schools because it's a city and they can do all the things that young people like doing in cities. So what are we going to do about this? We need some more adventurous policies, such as, for example, paying the commuting costs of bright young teachers so they can live in the big city, in Sheffield, in York, in Leeds, but teach in the small town. Or help with mortgages for those teachers ready to start their own family and move out the city. In the two years, <laughs> in the two years since the referendum result, we should have begun to address these challenges. Instead, too many have been reheating the remain arguments of the referendum. Until politicians, all of us, break out of this cycle, these communities will not get the attention they deserve. Thanks. I think that was very useful. A lot, a lot in there, actually. I think there's going to be a lot to unpack in there. But David, um, your thoughts, please. Okay. Um, well, I, I agree with most of what Caroline said, although I think I would take issue with uh, just looking at the, um, the issue from the noughties onwards. I think a lot of the, I think the Brexit vote really goes back to the deindustrialization of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, I, I remember covering the miners' strike, um, and I got to know some of these areas in the mid-1980s, mid covering the miners' strike for the Financial Times, um, spending a lot of time in South Wales, the North East, Derbyshire, South Yorkshire, um, which was really my first introduction to the places that we now call the left-behind areas. Um, and there, there was a kind of bigger political economy issue that, that is associated, I think, with the decline of those areas. Of course, it's very much connected with changing technologies, but also much more open trade, the introduction of China into the World Trade Organization and so on, although that didn't actually happen until 2001. But um, what happened, I think, is that the complete, the, there was a complete political consensus around trade openness without really looking at the um, differential impacts of, of open trade, particularly on more industrial regions of both, of both the UK and the US and indeed much of Europe. And what happened was that, I mean, if you remember Robert Reich, the Clinton Labour Secretary, wrote this famous book, um, The Work of Nations, sometime in the early 90s, wasn't it? Um, and it, they, they, he basically said, we have to roll with globalization. Globalization is a great wealth producer. We've got to roll with it. But it's okay um, addressing the blue-collar base. Um, it's largely disappeared now, of the Democrats and of the Labour Party. Um, we will retrain you. you know, we'll turn you all into technicians um, for, the, for the new economy. And it simply did not happen, either in the US or the UK. The one place in the developed world where it did happen was Germany, and that was largely because of the co-determination system. You cannot make large-scale redundancies in Germany without a social plan uh, f uh, for those redundancies, which requires companies to invest in 
in retraining. I mean, it hasn't always worked perfectly in Germany either. But the, that slowed up the whole process, made it much more humane, much more civilized. Germany is still a very productive economy and uh, is extremely open to, to global trade too. Um, so I think that that's sort of part of the background. And we never, I mean, we went through, I was actually just reading the other day a book by a very conventional economist uh, called Charles Dumas, Populism and Economics. Um, and he, I thought, I thought he got it. Uh, uh, he, he was talking about um, deindustrialization. Indeed, he talked about the miners' strike. This is not somebody who was sympathetic to the miners at all. Indeed, he said that the absolutist demands of, of the appallingly led NUM had to be faced down. However, uh, the great, uh, uh, and it was right that they were, however, the great policy failure came after. The, um, the end of the miners' strike, there should have been a kind of great reconciliation plan for the whole country uh, that would have bound in the industrial parts of the Midlands and the North uh, and Wales into the new booming UK economy. And that never happened. Um, and, I think, and I think one has to lay the blame at both main parties for the lack of that. Um, I mean, as Caroline was saying, you know, basic, quite small, easy to fund uh, intra-North and intra-Midlands uh, rail connections, transport connections. I mean, the, the, the Burnley to Manchester line that had been closed down, I think, in the mid or late 70s was not opened again until about three years ago um, uh, at not any great cost. Um, and um, anyway, that, that, that is the sort of historical backdrop, I think. Um, I mean, the kind of longer term, the two big factors that I think make this problem even more acute in this country than many other developed countries is London, you know, the great, um, you know, what, what did Carlyle call it? You know, the great um, when, the great when. Um, I never quite know what a when is, but it sounds, it sounds something a bit sinister. Um, the great when, which is now even a greater when now than it ever was uh, in terms of sort of disproportionate size and the extent to which it sucks in talent and capital and resources uh, from the rest of the country. Um, the, uh, the FT columnist uh, Janan Ganesh, who is a sort of famously sort of metropolitan dandy figure, um, talked about, um, you know, and he's a great sort of Londonist, and he talked about London being shackled to the corpse of the rest of the, of the country, um, something that's been rather neatly turned around by Paul Collier, Paul Collier, the, the development economist who's written a really good book. Um, he's sort of come, come home and written about the UK now in a very good book called The Future of Capitalism. Uh, he's turned that around and talks about how the rest of the country feels it's shackled to a shark, the shark of London. Um, but it's, it's the London factor, but it's also, I think, um, and this is a really important and a rather distinctively British thing, the effect of residential universities. Uh, we've, had a, we've had this sort of you know, boarding school tradition that has dominated higher education. The proportion of people that go to residential universities is actually coming down now, partly because more working class people, more ethnic minority kids are going to university. Um, and often not wanting to move 100 miles. But the it's still something like 70 75% of people who go to university in this country will go to a residential university, 50, 100, 150 miles from where they live. And that has the effect of you know, draining uh, you know, the, the non-metropolitan centres of many of their brightest and most dynamic people who often never return home. 
Um, I mean, you know, I went to a residential university, you know, having three years kind of discovering yourself, you know, is a wonderful thing, but it comes at a very high cost, I think. And it's, it's not true in the United States. Half of all, all students in the US live at home. Uh, it's also not true in continental Europe, except for the very elite kids who often go abroad. Uh, most people go to, the, to, to university in their hometown. So you get a sort of continuity between your circles of friends you met at school and at college, and um, there isn't the same temptation to leave and never return. I mean, uh, oh, okay. Um, uh, this, this, the problem, uh, the, the, to, to live a kind of an achieved life in Britain, you have to move, unless you come from a very small number of places, is, I think, one of our great social as well as economic problems. I mean, Justine Greening encapsulated this. Um, it may be slightly unfair to pick on her, but she did say this in a speech, believe it or not, to the Social Mobility Commission. She talked about how she came from Rotherham um, and that when she was growing up in Rotherham, she used to dream about owning her own house, having a well-paid and demanding career uh, that, would, that would be stimulating and so on. And she said, I, I could never have that in Rotherham. And this is an extraordinary thing to say. Rotherham is a town of 120,000 people. It's half an hour commute from Sheffield. I mean, that whole sort of metropolitan region is probably about a million and a half people. The idea that you cannot live an achieved life in Rotherham um, seems to me absolutely extraordinary, and yet partly true as well, <laughs> um, which is the problem. Um, and oh, just final point, I mean, there are one bit of unintentional but successful regional policy in this country has been the conversion of many of our uh, former industrial cities in, in the Midlands and particularly the north effectively into university towns. You know, when you think of you know, Leeds and Sheffield and Newcastle and Manchester, they all have multiple universities in them and huge populations of, of students, domestic and international, and huge faculty uh, that have helped to revive these towns. Um, and the places that haven't had it um, or have much smaller or more local universities, places like Middlesbrough or Sunderland, have not been revived in the same way. Um, anyway, I've, I've got a few ideas about what we do we about all this, but I'll, I can we come back to that. Yeah, yeah we can thanks. come back to them. Thank um, thanks, David. And Mo, your thoughts, please. Uh, can you hear me all right at the back yeah. there? Yeah, great. Um, well, I have to admit, I was feeling quite smug about myself on Wednesday night because I thought it was ahead of the curve. I'd written down what I was going to speak about today and I was feeling very confident. And then I went to the battle of ideas yesterday and I've completely changed my mind. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, there was a couple of conversations that I had actually outside the battle very late last night. And um, I think they're... Um, quite pertinent to what we're talking about today. Um, so see what you think. So one was with my brother-in-law, Bruce. Um, he's a working class lad uh, from Hull. And he lives um, just above us in the Barbican in one of those three million pound apartments which he owns and works in the city. And um, Bruce was, because he knows I work in the cultural sector, he was waxing lyrical about the fact that Hull had been made city of culture last year. And he was very excited about the prospects of um, kind of uh, Hull's revival from kind of economic decline, industrial decline, into one of these 21st century uh, creative cities that Richard Florida talks so much about. But Bruce has got absolutely no intention of going back to Hull. That's the first thing. 
Um, the second conversation I had was the friend that I'm staying with, um, um, who, <laughs> that's Bruce uh, <laughs> flicking the lights there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So then I went home um, uh, to the friend I'm staying with who lives in uh, South East London or East London. She lives in Newham. Uh, her name's Jane, and uh, she's a very upper middle class um, person who went to a finishing school and always bemoans the fact that they didn't teach her any skills, uh, they just taught her how to be a lady, okay? She had no aspirations, no sort of sense of, she quite liked science, um, but she once blew up the chemistry lab. So as punishment, they sent her off to play a piano, which was actually not so much of a punishment, because she's now a brilliant musician, and she works um, with the British Council all over the world, um, kind of teaching music to people in different situations. And she was telling me about some of the work that the British Council has been doing in a place called Scaramangus, which is just outside Athens. Uh, it's in the port area. And um, there are lots of Syrian refugees waiting there, but not just Syrian refugees, uh, refugees from other places as well. So it's not necessarily a common language amongst the people that are, that are residing there at the moment. Um, and what she's told me that was while they were waiting for their papers to be processed and, and their application to go through, which can take months, years even, as we know, what they've done, even though there's not necessarily a common language, is they've started to make makeshift houses out of the containers, the shipping containers, little pot plants around the, you know, really making them quite beautiful. Um, and um, they've also uh, kind of started up like little cottage industries, selling fruit and other food and um, utensils and other sorts of goods as well. Um, they've created some ad hoc schools for the children where the parents take it in turn. There's a rota where they draw on their specialised skills uh, to teach the children. So they've even got this little high street she was telling me that runs down the centre of the camp and they call it with a certain sense of irony Oxford Street um, so what I'm saying there is they've created this little community so there's something I think about these two stories when we're talking about the issue of revival one place, Hull, is using a mix of state intervention incentives to businesses, creativity to revive Hull the other place is a little bit of support, of course, from, cha uh, from charities, some relief, uh, charity relief there. But they've created a little community there out of the ingenuity and resourcefulness of the refugees there. Which seems to me a little bit about a story of people making order of the chaos that is around them. You could say they're taking back control. Um, and that's partly what I thought was so brilliant about your recent, uh, the Labour Party's recent... Um, uh, uh, TV promotional ad. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Our Town. But actually, it doesn't focus on the town. There are some beautiful shots of um, the streets. And it's, it's, I think it's set in one town. And there's some arty shots of the kind of uh, industrial areas and the decline and all the rest of it. But actually, the narrative of the uh, Labour Party ad is uh, the people. So it focuses on about five or six people who all live in the same town, who all have a very different challenges and all have very different wants and desires. Um, and it also contains this uh, phrase, we lost control. And I don't think you're talking about the Labour Party there, are you, Caroline? It's talking about we, the people, having lost control. 
And in the northeast, when I talk to Leave voters about where they voted Brexit, they don't talk about taking back control of the borders, as the, um, as the, the British media would have the, you believe. Um, immigration isn't something that particularly touches us up in the northeast. What they're talking about is taking back control of their lives, and I suppose, in some sense, um, being able to determine their own life chances. And I get that, because although we often talk about the Northeast as uh, being built on natural resources and geographic features like the coal seams being close to the surface of the land, access to the big rivers and uh, the ports and being able to take that coal out and easily transport it and export it around the world, which of course led to the steel industries and shipbuilding and all the rest of it. We talk about the history of the Northeast in that way, but actually it was people who transformed those resources. And it was people that created that prosperity. And I'm just, I don't just mean labour and toil, I'm also thinking about individual people. So in, innovators like Joseph Swan, who developed the first light bulb, Robert Stevenson and his famous rocket, William Armstrong, and so on. There was human innovation there that brought about some of these achievements. And then their innovation led to a more a widespread intellectual development. So these men founded the Lytton Phil Society in Newcastle, which was aimed to bridge a gap between the intellectual centres of Edinburgh in the north and Oxford and Cambridge in the south. And so partly it was because they wanted to educate their workers, um, but partly and it was open to all and it was used by all and men, women, working class, um, middle class alike. So sometimes I think when we talk about the issue of rust belts and when we talk about brain drain, almost visually we're thinking about the drain rather than the brain bit. Okay, and I feel sometimes when we talk about this issue, and I just throw this out there as a suggestion, that we get a bit geographically determinist about it. So that's maybe what you're alluding to there, David, with um, um, Justine Greenway's um, comment. Um, so yes, I do see exactly what you're, what you're saying, Caroline, about um, transport and infrastructure and spreading industries and jobs more evenly across the UK. I could barely get across London this morning. It's so packed. Um, I hopped in a taxi because I was running late. Anyway, uh, you can't use the roads in London, can you? It's a nightmare. <laughs> um, but I suppose my point is that are we neglecting the importance of people's role within this process of revival and the human qualities of hard work, of ingenuity and resourcefulness. Those defined the original coal miners of Newcastle and they're also, I would say, defining some of those refugees living on the outskirts of Athens and creating their own community there. Okay. So, thanks. Uh, there's there's uh, a lot on the table, but I'm going to come out... I'm don't worry, I'm going to get everyone in who wants to speak. Uh, what I'm going to do, panel, is take probably groups of about four questions. Don't feel the need, everybody, to answer anything. Just pick up on something that you think is interesting, or maybe if it's directed di directly at you. So I'll start over here um, with you, and then I'll come to you and along. And don't worry, we'll get to you. So, yes, the gentleman in the beard there. Um, hello, that was a great introduction. I'm glad that... I'm glad I heard that. Uh, I could talk a lot, but I won't. I'll cut it down. And Good. basically, basically, you know, um, basically, I find it difficult to have this conversation without any serious discussion of the elephant in the room, which is productivity. And I mentioned that because there was a very good uh, introduction on that, quite a sophisticated one yesterday, which I think is recorded. So there's lots of talk about productivity and the differences between being able to increase productivity in services and 
industry, as I think has mentioned, the old, the old industries that um, had the volume jobs and all that kind of stuff. But basically, I think it's, it's fine talking about transport links, training, etc. But the engine, as I think was alluded to, is productivity. So I'd be interested to hear your points on okay, that. Okay, just the microphone right behind you. Can you bring the other microphone down <coughs> here? Okay, my question is a simple one. Did the old traditional blue-collar jobs provide some sort of cultural or social need for the people that the newer white-collar jobs aren't providing? And if they did, is it possible to bring that back after the economy's changed so much from the old days? Thank you. Okay, thanks. And yes, you've got the microphone. Um, my family are all from the north, and whenever I go to Hull, which is where my family is originally from, uh, the biggest difference I notice is actually... Uh, substantially less immigration and a huge amount less ethnic diversity and when we are talking about ingenuity immigrants are a great source of ingenuity and new ideas so I wondered the extent to which less immigration uh, limits the extent to which we can revive the north okay and the yes yeah I wanted to make I wanted to make a point about uh, the uh, the lack of funding for skills uh, and investment in uh, response to globalization. And the way I see it now, I feel like we're in a bit of a bind because there's, there's a strong political will to reduce the amount of immigration um, within the UK at the moment. It's been you know, the number one issue in polls for a very long time. Only in 2017 it became Brexit. But... It's, you know, uh, that I don't think we can go too much longer without addressing that issue. And when that happens, currently, because we aren't investing in training up uh, the domestic population, um, when, once we reduce immigration, we are going to have a skills shortage. And there's going to be a time delay in between actually starting the investment in skills and having those skilled workers. And I was wondering how we deal with the skill shortage within that time. Okay, fine. And let's get one more in just now from this lady here, and then I'll come back to you for, for a, you know, a thought on some of them. Yes. Um, hi, I'm actually from Stockton-on-Tees, which is 10 miles from the mighty red car. <laughs> and whenever we're on TV, uh, you'll have heard of us through such uh, lovely programmes such as Benefit Street, <laughs> Panorama, looking at the inequalities of uh, health outcomes within two miles of Stockton High Street and Eagles Cliff. Um, going back a bit further, there was Margaret Thatcher's Walk in the Wilderness. That wilderness was where my dad's factory used to stand. So as far as I'm concerned, you're dead right it didn't start 10 years or 20 years ago. It started in the 1970s and it's not got a damned sight better. I have seen my community, my area, my people denigrated, talked down, left behind, um, talked about as though we're all ignorant, bigot, racist. The people of Sunderland with Nissan uh, at stake still voted out of the EU. The problem is with the North East and this talk of the Northern powerhouse. You're talking about Manchester. That's the Midlands. That's yeah. not the North. <laughs> I don't really care if you're not 10 minutes off your train journey from Birmingham to London. What we want, what we want is the use of Durham Tees Valley, Valley Airport that has a mighty six flights a day, three to Aberdeen and three to Schiphol where you can actually get somewhere in the world. We want our um, 
needs to be looked at, not in this uh, sort of benevolent way from London, or we might give them a turn even though they always vote Labour, um, although obviously that's no longer to be taken for granted. But um, in terms of the young people, my daughter is shortly going to go to university. A few years ago, she, couldn't, she wouldn't even countenance moving two streets up. Now she can't wait to get away, and she's not going to come back. And I'm only waiting for her to leave so I can go myself. And, and this, is, this is what's happening. It, it, is, it is beyond grim. It is beyond wretched. We can save the banks, but the last furnace in Teesside was allowed to go out, and nobody could do anything about it, partially, I understand, because of the rules of the EU. So is it any wonder that people voted to leave? It's about time that people understood that the, the North East is not Manchester, it's not Birmingham, it's not Sheffield, it's Stockton, Hartlepool, Darlington. It's all of these places that have been left to rot for decades. Okay. So, shall I come to this side of the table? I mean, either of you. Uh, well, I so mean, I, 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 I agree a, a, with a lot of what the, Sorry, what's your name? Liz said just then, and my husband's from Stockton, actually, in <laughs> Heartburn. Uh, I know Eaglescliffe very well. I mean, you're right, and David's right as well, actually. I wasn't trying to give the impression that this started just 10 years ago. I think what I was trying to say was that, um, in some ways, some of the sort of uh, the way the economy was going in the noughties sort of masked because it just allowed the national debate to concentrate on what was working. But the truth is, you're right, um, David. We never had a plan. Whatever was going on between Margaret Thatcher and Arthur Scargill, right, we never had a plan to really help people cope with change. And it seems to me politicians of all parties fail their duty if they do not enable the right sort of policies and the right sort of money to go in to help people face the future and cope with change, because you can't stop change. And that's really important in all of this. Um, I, um, uh, I think on the uh, issues around productivity, I mean, again, you know, I think that's a big debate. But actually part of productivity is the technology and the training and the transport that helps that enable that to happen as well. And just to say, I'm involved in the Northern Powerhouse because I wanted a voice in there for the smaller towns and areas in the north of England. Doncaster is not a city. My constituency is 30 towns and villages that are satellites around the Doncaster town centre. And that's why I've got involved, because it, you're absolutely right. Fleetwood, where my grandparents retired to, because they're from the northwest, hasn't even got a rail station today. They're never going to get the fishing industry back, but they haven't even got a bloody rail station. I mean, that is a disgrace. And you can have the HS2s, but unless you've got that sort of connectivity going on to link Fleetwood to the places around them that have got the jobs and elsewhere in the northeast, uh, Yorkshire and Humber and the northwest, then I'm afraid people are just going to be filled. They're just being passed over yet again. Okay. Mo, have you anything that you want to respond to out uh, of that group? Yeah. Okay, I was going to put two things no, together one. then, <laughs> but in one, in one quickly, answer. I want to keep, I want, this idea of, of cultural and social identity and whether there was something that blue collar... Um, uh, I think culture comes out of the people who form the community, whether that's in a workplace, whether that's in a geographical place or whatever. That's why I use the example of uh, City of Culture, Hull. You can't put culture 
top down. It has to come from the bo uh, bottom up. The reason I use the um, example of the immigrants and their creativity and ingenuity, unless you accept there's something essential about um, uh, people from different places in the world having ingenuity, I think we all have it. I think that there's something about that situation, that circumstance, that has created them to be um, ingenious with, that isn't happening somewhere else. And I'm throwing that out as a kind of provocative statement. What is it about them that have seized that opportunity and created this community? I'm not saying it's luxu luxurious. I wouldn't want to live there. But I'm saying there's something about that human ingenuity in that situation. And it's got nothing to do with you know, the color of their skin or the fact that they're immigrants. I think human ingenuity is, is kind of a possible anywhere. We've just got to get the social circumstances right. OK, so Ruth and David, what, anything, just one thing pick up on, and then we'll go out for some more. Well, just one. Well, I'll take yeah. you back to Northern Ireland for a minute because of the question about um, blue-collar workers and communities. Um, the loyalists in Belfast particularly, the working-class Protestants, worked in the shipyard. They, they were all brought up to think in terms of skilled jobs. They didn't have it. They weren't taught any regard for a university education or education in the humanities. It wasn't what they did. And all the jobs went, essentially, and the communities were utterly and absolutely destroyed, quite apart from being hit by, um, essentially, a war over 30 years. But nobody did anything about apprenticeships. Nobody did anything about skill training. Nobody did anything about coping with change. They were just firefighting. And that's exactly the sort of problem. I mean, what gets me all the time is that nobody is listening. You know, you actually got to go down to it street by street and say, what would make your life work? And you'd find in all these areas in the country, for instance, where the fact that there's one bus a day makes it absolutely impossible for people without cars, which means people without money, to get a job 10 miles away. You know, and nobody is listening. And I don't think we've necessarily learned that yet. David, I can see you trying to get and, in. And I just want to say HS2, yes. I mean, how many people in this country would have said that that was more important than actually local railway lines and your three-mile road that you were seeking for 20 years? Uh, okay, just a quick point, channeling um, Paul Collier again. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he comes up, I think, with this very constructive suggestion of um, to, to help revive uh, some of the regional economies he calls for a so-called agglomeration tax, that there are all of these, as it were, unearned un 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 benefits of agglomeration in London and the other big metropolitan centres that accrue to landlords and landowners and indeed highly skilled professionals. You know, if you're a corporate lawyer, you, own, you earn X amount more in London than you do in, um, I don't know, in Cardiff or somewhere. Um, I mean, that may be partly because all the best corporate lawyers end up in London, but even, account, even allowing for that, you still have a, um, a kind of agglomeration effect that can be taxed, and it is taxed in New York um, and other places. Um, there are other, uh, other things you could do. Obviously, the huge capital gains of property owners, in, particularly in, the, in London and the southeast of England, um, could be tapped into in order to help create clusters of knowledge-intensive industries in... Um, in former industrial regions, uh, which now many of them have um, high-class universities, um, but they're not yet using the, um, 
the, the potential of those universities for, for creating new businesses and industries. Um, that's much easier said than done, I agree. But there are examples of where it's been successful in quite poor areas of America, like Duke University. There's some famous research triangle around Duke University, which is in a relatively poor area of the US. So, I mean, there are... There are kind of wonkish ideas that, that, that could work, I think, if we, if we had the political will to make them do so. Okay. I'm sort of interested in whether everybody accepts uh, the idea that, that uh, it is the, the, the money and the investment should go into existing towns. I mean, because there is a, 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 an argument that would say, well, if there's places w that are successful elsewhere, then let people gravitate towards them. And, you know, historically, um, in fact, talking in, the, in a session on regeneration this morning, mm -hmm. we talked about places like Corby, which are are products of people coming down from Glasgow and Scotland after the economy uh, messed up there. Yeah. Let me say something about that. Quickly. I think, well, look, so my family originated on my mother's side from the, nor uh, the, north, uh, the west coast of Scotland, agricultural labourers. They moved to work in the northwest of England. And I suppose at a time you could do that sort of thing in terms of population. Corby's a good example, though. And in my own constituency in Doncaster, we've got lots of people who came from Scotland to work in coal mines, but they were coming to what were created new towns. Rosington, in my constituency, they built, they built a pit village and therefore went out and recruited to come and from the northeast and we have that and we've got a few poles and a few ukrainians in there and from ireland in denneby and condor they built these villages and the stories of this is where you built a place stevenage is another place not so far from london uh, where you actually not only created jobs but you had homes and a whole cultural sense of people starting their families raising their kids and all of that together now i don't think that sort of thing's possible where we are today so we've got to find some other different solutions to this but you're right we cannot necessarily recreate those conditions. So we've got to think a little bit more out of the box. Okay, so I'm going to come out. Lots of hands. So you've got the microphone. Uh, then we'll come work our way back. On you go, yes. Um, I'm really glad that somebody mentioned uh, Germany and the protection of the labour, sort of uh, redundancies. But there are many other things I've, uh, I think we can learn from other countries. I mean, I've spent personally a lot of time living in Germany, so no systems a bit. Um, what about uh, the banking systems like the Kreditanstalt für Wiederaufbau, which is basically a state bank which was uh, uh, devised to uh, basically for redevelopment of industry, housing, anything, you name it, skills, to um, where it's needed. Um, it's the, the, but Germany's not a perfect country, but some things they've done since uh, the um, you know, fall of the um, Berlin Wall have been quite amazing if you look at some of the eastern cities despite problems, etc. But they're not the only other country that we could look to. I mean, there are things which go on. We talk about um, uh, the uh, refugees. I mean, what about looking at the, uh, you know, the fantastic arts projects which have been uh, developed from scratch in places like Detroit? And um, there are so many others. Yeah. Okay, uh, we'll get your comment on that, Mo, but could you just hand it to the lady next to you? Yes. Uh, could you give the microphone to that gentleman there <coughs> in the back? Yes. Um, it, it, yeah, a recent newspaper headline, which I uh, highlighted yesterday, a recent newspaper headline in uh, Croatia, uh, if Croatia is a failed state, does everybody need to migrate? Uh, it's similar to if, if the northeast is a failing region, does everybody need to migrate? I think, um, on the one hand, drawing as models from elsewhere, but, you know, these questions that have been asked here are questions that are everybody in Eastern Europe and Southern Europe is asking the, the, the same uh, questions, have got, have got these massive concerns. And so, in, in terms of, of, of 
Britain being looked to in terms of how is Britain now grappling with, with, with the fact of people's discontent with the existing European settlement. People are looking to um, this country. And on the, the question of, of, of migrants, the reality is, like one of my friends in Corby from Croatia, he's a bloody electrical engineer and he's car valleying. We have a profound problem with um, uh, productivity and many of the, 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 the skilled migrants are coming here to de-skilled uh, 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 jobs. And uh, so... Um, uh, and we talked about innovation, but I think there is a question about the, the existing circumscribing of that local innovation uh, and the question of procurement and procurement rules that represent a race to the bottom and a denial of people's innovation, for example. So some of those public procurement rules, can we have a post-Brexit that challenges some of the global or EU or national frameworks that limit um, uh, innovative, creative public procurement as opposed to a, a race to the bottom. Okay, there's a gentleman at the back there that's got the microphone. And then if yeah. you go to the lady there. No, yeah. no. Uh, thank, thank you very much indeed. Um, my question is for the entire panel, uh, but it's particularly uh, based around... Um, uh, statements um, Mr. Goodhart gave when he was presenting, publicising his book. He made some very, very powerful comments which certainly hit home with his audiences. Is there any indication that the metropolitan elites are really taking this on board? And as a follow-up to that, what about where do you see the opportunities for increased automation um, and so-called artificial intelligence. Because it strikes me there's a marvellous opportunity for the neglected regions, um, because it, but basically distance and so on becomes irrelevant, but that a lot of that, those opportunities could be missed if the elite decision-makers aren't spending enough time in the regions because I suspect those elite decision makers compared with their grandparents' generation have much, much less contact with people north of Norwich and Birmingham and west of Bristol. Thank you. Okay, thanks. And the lady with the microphone there. So I don't know much about the economic arguments, but what I wanted to focus on, which has been touched upon a bit and was touched upon just now, was sort of the, the social and the feelings of the North and the, the whole country as a whole. And I'm wondering how much what we can do to address the sort of lack of self-esteem, it seems, in these, in these areas. So, for example, something that we could do was just cement more of a national identity or less of a stigma against national identity, because it seems, at least in the South and the Southeast, there seems to be more affinity with, say, migrants coming to the southeast than there is with other people in the, in the rest of the country. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but I do think it is worth considering the whole country as a whole and the health of the country raising the self-esteem of people in other regions. I mean, you get people on woke left Twitter thinking that supporting the three lions is fascism. You know, can we, can we do something about this and make sure that people don't feel ashamed of wanting to be part of this country so we can revive self-esteem? Okay, gentlemen, has got the microphone. 
Yes. Uh, this, uh, this is for the next generation. It's actually for my two granddaughters who are about to start school. And it's after me putting in 40 years in the public and private sector and comfortably retired and being de-skilled time after time. Technology, customer first, shareholder value, health and safety, diversity. What is the set of key, the, say five, key transferable skills, please, that you would encourage my daughters to pick up as they go through school? Okay, I'm going to say the gentleman here, and then the guy in the red T-shirt there, and then I'm going to come back to the panel and give you a chance to pick something up. Then we'll come back out. Don't worry, we'll get you all in. So, yes. Okay, so it's a question about, um, about what, what, you know, in light of the... the um, the kind of you know the the aspiration to kind of reinvigorate the economy uh, of the north. Uh, what's your attitude towards uh, state spending? Because it, it seems to me there's kind of two things that come out of this perspective. First of all, namely to be more ambitious and more risk taking, to be uh, more long term. You know, people talk about a kind of, a, you know, a reinvigoration of a kind of Victorian approach where you would put in infrastructure at scale, you know, but there is clearly a, a kind of an economic challenge uh, to doing that. So I'd be interested to know what you think about that. And then also, um, you know, a kind of harder end to it. I, I mean, it seems to me that lots of state spending at the moment goes on things that are, you know, fundamentally about propping up existing interests. And so what things do you think we should stop doing and stop propping up in the spirit of kind of um, unlocking this future that we'd like to see? Yeah, I think that's a good question. What should we stop doing? Because there tends to be assumption that, you know, we need to continue everything we're doing and doing more. But actually, some of the stuff we're doing is arguably pretty ineffective. You could argue that 30 years of regeneration strategies have been pretty ineffective, actually. But yes, in the red T-shirt, and then we'll come back to the panel. Yeah, I think this might follow on from the excellent point you made about self-esteem. Um, I live in uh, Dudley, so black country, uh, jewel of the West Midlands. And it's all social mobility, social mobility all the time. They're always banging on about it. And I go into schools, a lot in schools, and social mobility seems to mean working class bad, middle class good. Um, <laughs> they'll get um, lists of jobs they should aspire to which are, oh, you can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor. There's no imagination. It's, it's 1950s, middle-class, white jobs. It's all rather tedious. And I had uh, one of my students, uh, I was talking to him uh, only a couple of weeks ago, because I had some visitors, and he said, oh, yet again, we've had someone come up from London and tell us that the black country's crap, because that's what they do. They find the people who are going to get good grades, and they say, oh, you can be a doctor, and you can live in London... And you can be middle, middle class like us. And the others, they give them a pat on the head and put them on apprenticeships. It, it really hits the self-esteem and it hits the pride in the region. It's, it's terrible. Okay, so let's come to Ruth and David first, either of you. Um, again, just kind of pick up on something that interests you. and or. Well, a couple of things. Um, just a small point about immigration. I think it is only now that people are beginning to accept that wages fell for the unskilled because of immigration and that it was also an incentive to employers not to bother about increasing productivity. And the people who have lost out, as usual, are the people at the bottom of the heap. Um, I think about the kind of thing that can be done. It's very interesting what Dyson is doing. 
I mean, he's actually setting up a university in order to train people because he can't get the educational establishment interested in practicalities. And, you know, I think at the core of an awful lot of this is, is a snobbery, not in the sense, the old-fashioned sense of snobbery in this country, but the snobbery of, I hate the term, but the metropolitan elite again. I mean, you were, oh, I've forgotten who it was, was asking, you know, is there any sign that they are affected by this, any sign that they've learned from this? Well, I'm afraid not, because the way that they are reacting to leavers, I mean, the fact that everybody who voted leave is fat, stupid, ill-educated, and all the other things we are, um, is um, that hasn't ameliorated. Even that has not changed. They're still thinking like that. Uh, I got a very strong sense, and I'm really not trying to make a party point here at all, Caroline, that Blair and some people like him, and there would have been people like him in the Tories, they just didn't like the English much. They particularly didn't like the working class as much. I mean, who the hell wanted to be with them? Which is why this whole mania for having a cafe society like Europe developed, which of course turned into unfortunate scenes in the middle of the night in lots of places in London and the North. Um, so I don't know what has to be done to make the Metropolitan Elite listen, but I think possibly the Leave vote will ultimately have its impact there. But there really is every reason for people not to feel, to have low self-esteem. They have been very, very badly treated. Uh, and and political parties really have to bear an awful lot of the responsibility because it's true that they're not as much in touch <coughs> as they used to be. I don't know why it is. Maybe they're just sucked into London and they don't want to go back home. The, and one last point is, why is nobody selling the quality of life you can have in a reasonable job. In all those areas where house prices are low, you can have wonderful gardens. You, you know, it's, it's potentially utterly wonderful if you can get a decent salary. But nobody seems to be selling that. Mm. David. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, provincial elites have have partly disappeared in the last um, 50 or 100 years and, and become very over-concentrated in London. But I would say, when on the kind of elite, I think there is an, uh, you should, it's very interesting, the long essay on liberalism in the, in the Economist 175th anniversary issue, which is a real mea culpa. I mean, it may, may, may not be representative. Uh, I also, by the way, recommend watching Steve Bannon absolutely taking apart the Economist editor, Zanny Minton Beddoes. Uh, if you can find it on YouTube, it's, it's, it's very, very enjoyable. Um, <laughs> Um, but I think, I, I mean, I think there is, you know, I mean, you, you, you might even say Theresa May represented the kind of admonished anywhere view and possibly over-admonished almost in the way that she responded to the Brexit vote. I mean, I think the, um, I think, you know, the so-called metropolitan elite are in a, in a state of confusion and they're kind of dividing in, 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 in different and rather interesting ways. Um, but I do think, I, I mean, I think there's a sort of bigger factor here I've been thinking about recently, which is that it, you know, it may turn out in retrospect that actually industrial societies, I mean, for all of the huge disruption we associate with the move from an agrarian to an industrial society, you know, the kind of physical and material pain and violence inflicted upon people as they, as they moved into the teeming industrial cities in the 19th century. But actually, industrial society may turn out to have been better at distributing status 
than post-industrial society, that there was no destruction of what people believed, um, traditional religious beliefs, indeed flourished um, Methodism. There was a whole new forms of, of religious belief emerged in, in the big cities. The family was not destroyed, quite the opposite. Um, uh, rates of illegitimacy fell throughout the 19th century, whereas, you know, if you, uh, and indeed new forms of meaning and status were created by by skilled, particularly for men, in skilled industrial employment. If you look at post-industrial society, there's a much narrower sort of source of, of status. It, it often, in this country, where it involves moving, as the, as the man from Dudley said, it means uh, you know, essentially getting into the A-level stream, going to a more or less good university and having a more or less good professional career. That is an extremely narrow range and is something that is open by definition only to perhaps at, at most 30, 40% of the population. So nobody seemed to give any thought at all. You know, when Tony Blair famously declares that half the population must go to university, did anybody think about the psychological impact of that on the 50% that were not going? I mean, when only 10 or 15% of the people in your class go to university and the rest of you go to the local, go and work in the offices and factories in your town, no, nobody minds particularly because it, it doesn't sort of... But when 50% or 60% go, of course, if you're not one of them, that it, it, it casts a shadow over you. Um, and I think that has, you know, the, the social ballast that was created by lots of middle income, you know, middle skilled jobs um, of the industrial era, that they're not going to come back. But we need to think about how we create post-industrial versions of those kinds of middle income, middle skilled jobs to give us the social ballast that we need. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting, the article in The Guardian the other day that was uh, it's actually about Doncaster, uh, yeah. I, I think, which um, uh, was having a bit of a go at uh, the, the kind of ringing of Doncaster with cheap warehouses and call centres and so on and so forth. And, and that, um, just, just sort of referencing that point that David's making there about uh, the way that uh, industrial society developed and, and gave genuine meaning through working lives, uh, is, you know, do call centres give, I mean, the call centre was the guy's dream job in that the mighty red car actually which was kind of somewhat uh, dismaying really i mean you don't have to pick up on that well, but I just mean, and the only thing is that what i uh, object to and and I, I preface this by saying sort of some of the conditions that exist in if you like distribution centers call centers do need to be addressed i mean the fact we out we when i first became an mp we had a lot of call centers in Doncaster, and then they were all outsourced to another continent, basically. So even those jobs went for local people. But I think the danger of that article, and I did read it, is because the new Amazon thing is my own constituency. Yeah. And I have to say, actually, from the 1st of November, Amazon have decided they are going to pay the living wage across the world. Yeah. Um, so that will... Drive that, other companies well, no, but, no, but hang on a second, hang on a second. But that's, a, that's, a, that's a bargain basement thing. Yeah. If we don't have them supporting a living wage... Mm. That doesn't, you know, what do we do? You know, and, that. and the other thing about Amazon, of course, I'm on the public accounts committee. Um, I, you know, the fact that I have that in my constituency doesn't hold me back from going for what they should be paying on tax and the Facebooks. But it's no point getting into a thing saying people who work at Amazon, basically talking, patronising them again. I mean, I, I've been in there, you know, and it's, again, it's that sort of, oh, shit jobs, call centres, shit jobs, you're doing this. It just makes people feel bad about themselves. What we need to do is make sure the conditions in those places are good, but also we have to have a balanced look at how they fit alongside other things in places like Doncaster. And it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. And it's just the sterility of that debate just isn't getting us anywhere. And on the, I just want to talk about the state and money. 
Do you know what? I think I, I just appreciate more in the last, I don't know, six or seven years, more than I did before, that actually market capitalism doesn't necessarily work without public subsidy. So I covered uh, the energy brief for five years, six years under Ed Miliband. And what came home to me is, one, how much energy in all its forms, not just renewable, but the old systems as well, have relied on the state, despite privatisation, uh, to basically um, prop them up. And Germany is so interesting because before the common market was created, they took into it state-owned industries, included in the energy center, sector, but also this amazing uh, national regional banking investment organization that was able to um, you know, be able to support all sorts of initiatives, large and small. The problem for us, you know, is partly is that when we sort of signed up and went in when we were in the process of once we privatized a lot of our industries, and I'm not saying we should re-nationalize them or anything like that, we couldn't turn it around. So the sort of things that Germany can do for its steel industry, that it can do through its state-owned industries, we weren't allowed to do because we changed the relationship of the state to those sectors. And, and that was part of the problem as well. It's why steel has found it very difficult, the problems with the blast furnaces and everything else. It's not all Europe's fault, though. It's because of decisions made here. Yeah. Okay, mm. Mo, can I come back to you on the next round yeah. so I can get out to the audience again now? So if we take the microphone to that guy there, who you're right next to anyway, and hand it over to him afterwards, and then we'll get everyone in. Yes. Uh, need to be quite brief now, because lots of people to start. Yeah, uh, Nico McDonald. Uh, on the issue of um, post-industrial cities, there was an interesting talk at the RSA by... Donald K. Carter talking particularly about Pittsburgh, which people might be familiar with, and the way it's reinvented itself, its population quartered over about 30 years, and now it's a center for universities, medical research, and high tech. And I think that's an interesting example for us, obviously a city very like the cities of the Don Valley. Um, I thought Mo was very interesting on uh, historic entrepreneurs and innovators, and to pick up Paul's point here at the front, I think we do need to think both about productivity and more about industry and new forms of industry, uh, and what we can do around high tech, but also creativity and how we might combine them. Small scale, high quality manufacturing is another area we might look at, uh, even if the big jobs can't come back. This is sort of David's post-industrial vision of middle status jobs. And I'd point also to the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre, Caroline, which you'll know um, in Rotherham, which is funded partly by Boeing, collaborates with Sheffield University, and is a world leader in innovation in aircraft manufacturing technology. Uh, and I'd also just like to put in a word for East London, which sounds a lot like some of the places that we've been talking about and is on our doorstep, uh, deindustrialized from the docks and manufacturing. And around the Royal Albert Dock, there's really interesting things going on at the moment, which we should be tying in this discussion into. And around Essex and the Medway Towns, which I'm also doing research around, which we allude to in the conference program. So let's not just make it about the north, but neither a north-south divide. Okay, could you just hand it to... Yes. Um, right, the very first person who spoke in this room hit the nail on the head, and it's that guy there, talked about productivity. But we're not going to have productivity in this country until we've got cheap energy. And we're not going to have any efficiency until we have large-scale industry. And we're not going to turn the rust belt, or save the rust belt, by homegrown your mom-and-pop enterprises. It's just not going to happen. 
we, we can't do that because we're absolutely terrified of development in this country because of an unholy alliance between, between nimbyism and environmentalism. And I'd like to illustrate it in two ways. I went to my, my family, sorry. Yeah, my family, just quickly. Yeah, my family are from, from the northeast. They're miners stock. I went to the Miners Gala this, this year. And there isn't going to be any coal dug up in the northeast. No. Um, instead of being a celebration of mining, instead of being a celebration of industry, it was a political event. And just down the road, there was an open cast um, mine being demonstrated against by people who had set up a climate camp there. Um, I think we really need to take on this unholy alliance between nimbyism and environmentalism. Okay. There was a hand, some, it's a guy in a blue t-shirt, I think, somewhere near the back. And if you can bring this microphone to the front. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, question for Caroline. So you, you mentioned infrastructure projects, and I don't think anyone in here would really disagree with the benefits they can bring. But is there a need for governments to be more innovative and bolder? And it sort of touches upon the point of productivity. What can be done? And please don't say enterprise zones as the, as the answer. Uh, yes. And then I'll bring you more. I think the guy just here just stole some of my um, comments. Okay, which is so don't repeat them. So I won't then. repeat them, no, but to come back on the mighty red car, Alistair, the guy, it wasn't his dream job, it was the only one he had in front of him. Um, I've watched Mighty Red Car three times, so I'll do mastermind on that anytime you like. Um, but the question is can we revive the Rust Belt? And I think the bigger bigger, longer-term questions, coal and steel, 50, 100, 200 years in the future, are we never going to be making things again? Will it, uh, mm. we, we automatically accept now that will never come back, um, and I'd really want to question that. And in terms of the level of ambition, I just don't think our approach is good enough for any of these places. I do think that we need a much bigger project, which is about construction and development, but much, much bigger scale. Um, I, I love seeing the ingenuity of individual people. People make their own decisions in the meantime, don't they? If, you know, if an, an economic cycle takes 30 years, you make your decisions, don't you? Um, and I think the small moves of containers and plant pots and arts projects, I love seeing that. It's not the answer, though, and maybe we should stop focusing on that. And let's talk about ships and steel and coal again, because I'm sure it's going to come round again, yeah. maybe when we're all dead. Mm -hmm. Okay, can yeah. I come back on that? Yes. Um, yeah. Let me just come back on those two points, because the point wasn't that you can make a pretty um, community out of it as a shipping container, or that we need little cottage industries. My point was that when we talk about Rust Belt communities, we use community, we use place, okay? So we kind of have this geographic determinism about how we define our people. The whole debate, this is your question about, you know, failed state in Croatia. Do we, um, I don't know if we should be frightened of geographic mobility. The Northeast historian Bill Lancaster talks about during the height of the coal uh, mining days, the Northeast, people in the Northeast were far more geographically mobile across all the different coal seams in the country. Um, I, and the reason that we feel our regional attachments is because we, we, we have our roots there, but we don't ha we can have our wings as well. I didn't actually want to get out of the northeast. I wanted to go and see what was else was out there. So my point is not that we need to go we need to start being kind of parochial. My point is that we need to do exactly the opposite. I think Alistair is a really important point there. Um, if there are new industries to be created and we can't revive 
the rust belts as they are, and we're creating new industries, um, then people will move with them. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean that I'm saying I don't care about people who want to stay in Doncaster all of their lives. But actually, if you know, if it's this whole self-esteem thing and this idea that you know to be socially mo mobile, it just kind of makes you feel bad. Um, so, um, so my point is not that at all. Um, does Briefly. that make sense? <laughs> I just don't think we should be frightened of geographic mobility. I think we can make people feel comfortable if they want to stay. But if new industry... It's all well, very well good saying that, you know, liberal elites aren't listening to us. Of course they're not. They're trying to have a second referendum. But it's no good getting angry at the current situation because historically we're going to have to think of plan ourselves around what the new situation is. We're going to have to fight really hard for it because okay. this is a different... You know, they don't care. Okay, so panel, I'm going to give you 90 seconds each at the end uh, to sum up and give your sort of final thoughts, which leaves me about four minutes to get everyone else who wants to speak in. So can I just see how many people there are, get a sense? Okay, so there's about five people. So we'll just go up here, down here. Oh, yes. Okay, yes. Yes, go. <laughs> quickly though. Right. I left London to Manchester and I didn't go back and I did a degree in science which means I have a very low opinion of most politicians. Yeah. The three labs where I worked, two are now housing estates and the other one is a branch of Tesco. They're not standing up to the EU rules, EU which killed off the fishing in Hull, but worst of all, it's imposed this idea of an HS2. Is this a line join them on the map by somebody in Brussels? There's no demand. What you need is to look, take a map of the London tube system and lay it to scale across the north of England. It doesn't <laughs> quite reach to, from Liverpool to Hull, but it shows you what connectivity means. You can lose in jo a job in Rotherham and you can get across the Pennines to Lancashire. That's what it means. Okay, thank you. So, yes. You hand it back to the guy there. Yes. Uh, I, it's quite strange today because I, I was walking past the Tower of London. And the Tower of London is where the metropolitan elite, as we know it, started. And we all know, if we have any historical background, about the fact that during the Industrial Revolution, I'll come back to the Tower of London, the towns, the cities and towns of the north of England exploded with enthusiasm and economics before London noticed. They didn't really notice that Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield, Newcastle, Stockton, all of them were exploding and becoming entrepreneurial. But before that, the Tower of London, when things like that happened again, previously in history, they, don't, they did what was known as the, the harrying of the north. The harrying of the north is where they went up to the north of England and basically destroyed it because it wasn't towing the line. Economically, I believe the metropolitan elite have been doing that ever since. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. thank you. So, yes, yeah. can you <coughs> hand the microphone to that guy in the blue shirt? Yeah, yeah I think um, uh, I was interested when a uh, lady there was talking about culture and, and the fact that uh, people aren't being listened to and talking about America, you know, the, the Trump phenomena. Um, I think that needs to be thought about, needs to be analysed when, when we're looking at that. Obviously, for, you know, if you're a progressive person, it seems a tragedy that the, the people have uh, uh, elected Trump. But one of the things he does, he does connect with people, he listens to them, he is prepared to uh, believe that people who are electricians and plumbers and, and the working people, you know, have been ignored in America, and that's how he got in. It, it, you know, it, for him, it may just be a strategy, and we're not sure what the outcome is going to be. But in our country, 
that is not happening. We haven't, there isn't a voice for, 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 for people at the bottom. And how does Trump do it? He does it because he's unequivocally in favour of economic development within what you call the Rust Belt. Whether that's going to work or not, but that's what he believes in. He believes in the building of roads, the building of infrastructure, the allowing of uh, fracking. Do we believe in fracking? Or is there, is, is there a huge middle-class opposition to it? Do we believe in the building of new motorways uh, where people could work on construction and, and so on? No, we don't. So we're stuck. Okay, thank you. And yes. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting how fracking keeps coming up. I, I live in Wakefield, and I wish actually Caroline was my MP rather than Mary Cray, because she's obsessed with plastic straws, recycled cups, <laughs> climate change. It, it, it's utterly mad. Wakefield is it's a mining area, surrounded by mining. Wakefield Council banned fracking. It's a bloody mining area. There's tens of billions of pounds worth of gas underneath where we live. And it could be, an, in, in the States, energy prices are going down and down and down. And these small towns are being revitalized. We've got mining engineers. And Wakefield Council's banned it. So th this sort of metropolitan elite obsession with... Uh, climate change and the Hepworth Gallery. I mean, it's a lovely art gallery. It, it, it's a bloody art gallery, right? That's all Wakefield's done in the last 20 years. So it's infected local politics. And, and sculpture parts. Sorry, I, I, I really love this stuff, but we could actually do some well-paid jobs and, and energy prices coming okay. down. Um, yes, I was interested in coming because I wanted to hear about the plans for the future. It just seems to me that haven't, we haven't seen any this evening panel, their plans are buses and more taxes or different taxes, while on the floor I think we've been more constructive with cheap power and connected transport, but neither, no one has, there aren't plans we're discussing or arguing about, these are just, we're talking about historical events or the present there is no future plan that's been offered Okay, panel, so there's your challenge, go beyond buses Mo, um, I'm going to give you 90 seconds each because people are going to be f you know, waving cards at me and telling me to stop if I don't. So Mo first. Um, future plan. We have, if we want to revive uh, Britain's Rust Belts, we have a big political challenge ahead of us. The Metropolitan mm. Police are not mm. listening. Uh, Metropolitan Police elite <laughs> are not listening. And David, you're right, they may have moved out of the provinces, but their attitudes, I work in arts and academia, those attitudes about working class people are still there in the provinces, believe me. So it's, I think the, the solution is political. Look, I'm not an economist. I appreciate I think Caroline's actually said some things about the future. But I like this guy's point about London didn't even notice the innovations of the region until we just got on with it. So actually, local solutions, um, igno not ignore them, but we're going to have to take on the challenge, that ideological challenge of the liberal elite, I'm afraid. And you're, you're right, uh, uh, Dave, about your uh, blue sky thinking about industry and new industries and energy. So, yeah, that's what I have to say. Big challenge ahead, but, you know, okay. we're going to have to Thank you, make Mo. it political. So, David, you're... Final thoughts. Okay. Um, well, I, I, I think we did come up with a few ideas here. You know, in, intensive <laughs> knowledge-based uh, industries, uh, amongst others. Um, the, the one, the one thing we haven't focused on very much, but it was raised by the the lady in the context of Germany, um, is the whole question of local finance, which I think is is pretty key. I mean, as we know, the financial system 
in the UK, although praised for being highly innovative, essentially doesn't lend to business at all. Um, and um, it is mainly internationally focused in London. And there are, and that is quite different to the situation in Germany, which has its uh, regional and local Sparkassen. And as the lady said, the Credit Anstalt für Wiederaufbau. Um, now, one of the problems, there is a genuine problem with EU state aid here. Um, it's, it's a very complicated thing, and it's not quite clear what we might be able to do outside the, the EU that we can't do at the moment. But one of the, I mean, there's a huge difference in the amount of regional support, despite the fact that we're all in the same um, EU system and we're all, we're all ruled by the same um, state aid subsidy rules. Uh, Germany subsidizes, uh, ha has regional subsidies that I think are something like 3% of GDP, whereas ours are barely 1% of GDP. But one of the reasons for that is so-called grandfathering, is that they were able to include things that already existed when the single market state aid rules were introduced. And one of those things was support for local and regional banks and things like the credit, and for uh, credit Anstalt für Wiederaufbau. Um, so... I mean, my hope is that when we leave uh, the European Union, we will be able to do these things. We will be able to subsidise local uh, banks to, to help these you know, innovative clusters and so on. But the, my final point, I mean, I think in terms of mobility, look, I mean, the, a, a lot of the sort of mobility, people moving from South Wales to Oxford car factories and so on, I mean, this was barely happened in the democratic era. I think in the welfare state democratic era, there is an implicit right to stay put. And I think that is a perfectly good right. Obviously, not everybody wants to. Lots of people will want to go out and discover the world. But there is an implicit right, which I think is worth defending. Um, and I think, you know, we shouldn't be too pessimistic about this. I think Brexit is going to lead to new trends in certain directions. It's going to make it hard for people just to take labour from abroad, which, is, which is one of the, has been one of the problems with our productivity issue. When you have a huge reserve army of labour an employer can just take an extra employee rather than getting the existing employees to work more productively and indeed invest in labour-saving equipment. We, we, there's an opportunity now to invest in human capital here. I mean, whether we'll be as adventurous as, as you know, Steve Barron, Bannon talks about bringing back the supply chain from China. I mean, you know, that, that would be a nice idea. But I think we will have higher inv investment in human capital. We've already got the apprenticeship levy, not working perfectly, but it's a beginning. Um, we're also going, Last you know, point, oh, David. We're also got going to, to have a lot more older people. And we're going to have to revive that, you know, the caring economy is going to be revived. These are, these are things that are, you know, domestic and inherent and cannot be exported. So I think there are, there are some grounds for optimism with, with some of the trends that we're seeing. Thank you. Yeah, good. Caroline. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, one thing I, that makes me pull my hair out is the rise of gap year and internships when it comes to social mobility because the truth is most of them in London. If you live in a council flat in London, which I used to uh, as a child, or if you live in uh, Belgravia, you've basically got a chance to get an internship because you've got a roof over your head in London that you can go back to. If you're from the north of England, the east of England, the west of England, down in the southwest, how difficult is it, it for you to be to rock up in London to take up one of those opportunities when you've got no money to even pay the rent. I think for me, given that when I was a young person, I used to for many years on my CV put all the jobs I'd had since I was 13. Uh, after, after school in the newsagents, a cleaner at a cake factory, uh, running the staff canteen with my friend Paula Dyson. I mean, literally, I thought this was really important because I thought it showed character and I still think it does. But quite frankly, the way it's all been set up today, young people would be laughed out of 
God knows what if they put that down. Second point, quickly, energy. There, look, I don't want to get into the whole fracking thing, but the truth is, along our eastern coastline, we are the windiest country in Europe. Along our eastern coastline, we have offshore wind that is creating jobs and opportunities, not just to create energy, but also to manufacture. Solar is massively popular in my constituency. People stand at the bus stop saying, look over there at that sonal panel. It speaks to people. And the people who put solar on the roofs of our houses are the same people who put TV aerials up and do the roofing. They've diversified their businesses to meet a new challenge, and that's what we need to do. And the thing is, positively final point on this, there's some fantastic things happening in the north of England the truth is we, we don't hear enough about it but we just need a bit more to be able to get on with the job and pick the big infrastructure things that are going to make the real difference to the communities that we serve and I think if government could just as I said listen more, do fewer things, bigger and better but have the people in the streets and the communities where you do that work say come up to their MPs and say oh my god I love that road that's where we need to get to thank you very much Ruth, very final remarks to you. I know, we're over time and I'm worth that. They'll take me to the Tower I, of London if I don't finish. Yeah. I like that, that the comment about Trump is so true. He does ask the questions other people, that your average Joe is asking. You know, like, why the hell are we subsidising Germany and NATO? You know, like, um, all of those sort of questions. The human rights outfit in the UN, why is that full of people who... It execute their their political enemies, all that sort of thing, and their journalists. Uh, I think what's very encouraging about today is how much in agreement we all are, really, and how much we all... Obviously, we all now have to go on and lynch anybody who admits to being in the metropolitan elite. So apparently, <laughs> apparently, there's nobody here that is. Um, but I, I just want to say two things, really. The first is I get very nervous about the idea of government acting in a way that's bigger or better or anything else. I worked in the Department of Industry for four years during the industrial strategy in the late 70s, and I saw how useless government was at actually picking winners and having bright ideas. What government means to, needs to do is to release the ingenuity of people, and what they should be doing is finding out at every part of this country of individuals what is stopping you making a living out of doing what you love in a place you love and then releasing them for that. That's the key to it, because there's so much talent out there that just isn't being given a chance. Okay, thank you very much.